From the Association of Registered Graphic Designers and Frontier Media, it's First Things First, a show about how design shapes and creates our world. I'm your host, Patty Harrington. And so I got fired and I wound up getting another job at a place called Frankfurt Balkine, which was a small design firm. And uh, I was an account guy there and I got held up at gunpoint while I was going home from work. And I took a couple of days off from work and I went to Aubrey Balkine to ran the company. I go, I've had this near-death experience and I've realized life is, is short. I, I was 26. And I go, uh, I know that I want to spend most of my time doing something creative. I don't know how to make money at that yet, but I don't want what this road that I'm on is going to go towards. So I quit. Jeff Greenspan is a Brooklyn-based artist and comedian whose work includes a focus on activism and social justice. He's the co-founder of Side Project, a creative and strategy consultancy that, in their words, helps brands talk to people without seeming like jerks. Jeff was BuzzFeed's first chief creative officer, a creative strategist at Facebook, and a creative director at BBDO New York. His professional work has been recognized by The One Show, Con, London International Awards, Communication Arts, The Art Directors Club, The Webbies, and The Clios. Jeff's side projects have focused international attention on issues as diverse as government surveillance, corporate crime, and hipster removal. When I was in my early teens, uh, I was working at a radio station as an intern. I wasn't really working. I was interning at a radio station. I was doing production work. And a lot of the DJs, part of their job was to write these promos to promote new songs of the week. It was called the Shriek of the Week. One of the DJs like had no time to write his. He goes, hey, can you, can you write mine? Can you record it? Because like I knew how to use the recording equipment and I did lots of weird voices when I was young. And uh, he loved it. He's like, hey, you know, you did such a great job. Do you want to do mine next week? Now, looking back as a 47-year-old man, this was someone getting free labor from a kid. But I was learning so much. I was learning how to write concisely and quickly. These things had to be done in 30. There were boundaries. You had to somehow creatively use the name of the band or the name of the song in the script. And it was supposed to be funny. So little did I know I was learning how to translate a brief. Then, you know, other DJs heard that I was writing these funny spots. So they asked me to write them too. And then finally the program director was like, wait a minute, this is all your guys' job and you're having this kid intern do them. But he heard them. He's like, these are all really funny and really well produced. And then that became kind of like my job at the radio station. And it was the first time adults took me seriously or felt that I had something to contribute or that I was getting positive feedback for my behavior. I had a really difficult childhood and difficult teenage years in terms of being in trouble with authority, schools, and my home life was pretty chaotic. So this was the first time I had adults kind of responding to me in a positive way. And I think that just left a real imprint. I didn't know that that meant I could be a comedy writer or an ad writer. I just knew I was doing something I really enjoyed and everyone else was liking it. You know, that that was sort of the first informal, like kind of the break, let's call it. What was the first paying gig? Well, it wasn't a creative gig. The first gig I got in advertising was as an account guy. Because I didn't realize that there were different sides to the business. All my education about advertising came from the TV show 30-something, which no one will even know anymore. But it was a show of people in their 30s who worked in an ad agency. And it felt like, oh, they're in business. They have jobs. They wear like adult clothes. And they're making ideas. Little did I know that the industry has sides to it, the account side, strategy side, creative side. So not knowing that, my goal is just to get into the building. And so I got a job at Young and Rubicam in New York as an account coordinator, which is the track towards being an account person. And it became pretty clear pretty quick that I was not 
cut out to be an account person and I got fired very quickly. I think I was the only account coordinator ever be fired. It's a job so low they don't even bother firing the people. But they made a point to come and find me and go, you, this is not what you're going to do. And I was like, why don't you just move into the creative side? And I didn't even know you needed a portfolio. I knew I didn't even know what I didn't know. And so I got fired. And I wound up getting another job at a place called Frankfurt Balkine, which was a small design firm. And uh, I was an account guy there and I got held up at gunpoint while I was going home from work. And I took a couple of days off from work and I went to Aubrey Balkine to run the company. I go, I've had this near-death experience and I've realized life is, is short. I, I was 26. And I go, uh, I know that I want to spend most of my time doing something creative. I don't know how to make money at that yet, but I don't want what this road that I'm on is going to go towards. So I quit. And he's like, well, what's your plan? I said, I don't have a plan. A plan got me where I am now. No plan. I'm gonna just going to find something creative. He's like, well, this sounds like you're, you know, you're reacting from an emotional space. Like, what do you think that you'll possibly do? to pay the rent. I go, I'll wait tables. I'll, I'll, I'll do something. And then I'll go to school for something. He goes, what, what something? I go, maybe theater acting, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I'm quit. He's like, listen, here's what I think you should do. I think that you should go take a class in something. I think you should take a class in copywriting because you are funny and you write well and you're already kind of in the business. But take a class in whatever you want, acting, pottery making, I don't care what it is. And after three months when the class is over, I'll fire you. And that way you'll have time to figure out what you like or don't like, you'll get benefits, but you get nothing if you just quit right now. And what an amazing opportunity this guy gave me because I took a class at the School of Visual Arts in New York with a guy named Adam Chasnow. And at the end of that session, 12 weeks, he came up to me and said, you know, I looked over your work. If you took all the work you did each week and polished it up, you'd have a portfolio and you could probably get a job. And so I went out, I did that, and I got a job at Gray, New York. And Gray, New York is then, is not what it is now. So I don't mean to be disparaging against Gray, which I'm about to be. But I went back to Aubrey Balakon. I said, thank you so much for that opportunity. I took a class, I put a portfolio together, and I got a job at Gray. I start in two weeks. He's like, no, 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 no. I didn't go through all this with you so you can get a job at Gray. I'm like, no, 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 they're changing. They're changing. It's like, yeah, they've always been changing. That's not the right place for you. Let me take a look at this portfolio you put together. He looked at the portfolio and he made me a copywriter there instead. In fact, my old resume, I think, used to say I worked at Gray from 12 to 12, 15 because I took the job and then I called and said, I can't take the job. And then after about six more months, I took another class with a guy named Sal DeVito who runs DeVito Verde in New York and he was teaching a class at SVA, a very hard to get into class. There was like a, a two-semester waiting list to get in. But I called DeVito Verdi every day demanding to speak to Sal DeVito, not realizing what type of a personality he is. He's a very uh, – he could be prickly. He could be prickly. Lovely guy though. And I pretty much harassed him until he called me back. He's like, why you – He talks like this. Everyone does their own kind of Sal DeVito depression, but this is mine. And he's like, you call my agency every day and you're asking for me. Who the fuck are you? And I'm like, I need to be in your class. He's like, well, you get on the waiting list like everyone else. That's how it works. I'm like, no, I will not be on the waiting list. I need to be in this class now. I'm like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to find out where the class is and I'm going to sit outside the class. And when students come out to go to the bathroom, I'm just going to ask them what the assignments are. And then the next week I'm going to come back with the assignments. So I'm going to be in the class even if I'm outside your door. He goes, yeah, you think that's what you're going to do? I go, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. He's like, well, if that's what you're going to do, I might as well take your fucking money. So you're in the class. And then I got into the class. And on the last day of the class, he offered me a job. 
This spring and fall, some of the world's top creative minds tell it like it is and explore the deep truths of design at Design Thinkers. Design Thinkers is an annual conference for like-minded people and offers in-depth analysis of trends and best practices in design. On May 29th and 30th in Vancouver and October 24th and 25th in Toronto, join a community of people passionate about creative communications and go deep into the truths of design. For more information, visit www.designthinkers.com. You're a funny guy, and you've recently taken an interest in stand-up comedy. How do comedy and creativity connect in your work? How do they connect? I mean, well, they certainly, for me at least, come from a very similar place because I'm always trying to make fun of things. Maybe because my whole personality and my whole career is just an elaborate extension of a defense mechanism when I was a kid. Because if I could make fun of myself first before other people made fun of me, then I had like a shield, you know? And then I would turn that focus on to other kids. Not that I was a bully. I'm a small guy. But like I was able to kind of make friends by being witty and being sharp and by being first with an observation. But it was really just to defend myself. But then when I got into the adult world, if I, I guess I'm in the adult world, advertising was a good place for that. And stand-up comedy, I think, comes from certainly the same place. It's like, what is the thing everyone's thinking or no one's talking about? Or what is the thing I'm thinking that no one else is talking about? And it feels good to realize that these weird things that you think if there are other people laughing, other people think them. Of course, when you get onto a stage and you're doing stand-up comedy, you want a lot of people to laugh. But it's also kind of satisfying when just one person laughs. If there's just one person laughing, that means there's someone in this room that gets this reference or gets why these two things together, why these two mashup of ideas make sense. A lot of your work seems to be politically charged. How does that mesh with comedy in your work? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a comedian at heart, and my original projects were comedic in nature. I did a project with Hunter Fine called Hipster Traps, where we set out bear traps all around New York City that were baited with things that hipsters liked uh, in hopes of catching them. It was a catch-and-release program. We weren't trying to kill the hipsters. Hipsters, alas, are very thin and can slip through most bear traps. So we didn't catch any. But we did get people talking about gentrification in, in, in a certain way. It wasn't really a political project. It was comedic. Um, I divided up the streets of New York City into two lanes, one for tourists, one for New Yorkers, just because I needed to get places faster. And I knew that that kind of scratched an itch for a lot of New Yorkers. And I do a lot of stand-up comedy. But around the time of the Captured Project, we are always listening. Even an installation of an Edward Snowden statue in a public park in New York City. Prison Ship Martyrs Monument 2.0. Yeah. Where does that name come from? We installed a statue of Edward Snowden onto an existing monument called the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument, which honors those who lost their lives during the Revolutionary War. And so we thought we could connect the two narratives, those who lost their lives for the foundation of this country, which had a certain set of ideals, and those who continued to lose their lives or sacrifice their lives for the promotion of those ideals. And so um, that's why it's called Prison Ship Martyrs Monument 2.0. Can you tell me about the Captured Project? Yeah, the Captured Project is a piece of work I did with my creative partner and business partner, Andrew Tider. We run a consultancy called Side Project together. And we were really um, dismayed at how corporations were getting away with crimes that if individuals committed would be sent to jail for probably the rest of their life. And they dress it up as commerce. 
You know, advertising and design spends a lot of time putting a happy, comfortable face on horrific crimes committed by Nestle or Coca-Cola. And so we created this project where we had people in prisons all across the country paint and draw portraits of people we feel should be in prison, which are the CEOs of the corporations that are committing these atrocities. And we put the collection of work together and we presented each portrait along with two rap sheets. Rap sheets are the crimes that someone committed. So there was a rap sheet for the corporation and the crimes that they had committed over the years, and then the crimes committed by the incarcerated artist. The whole project took about two years to do, and a full year of that was just researching the crimes of the companies. It wasn't us just saying, look, Nestle's bad. We had to go and like look at the settlements and look at the cases brought against them by the Department of Justice. And for every single company, we had to spend all that time doing that research and have references on the website. It's striking when you see some of the comparisons between the rap sheets for the CEO and then the rap sheet for the person who's in prison. Could you describe one of them or the nature of those? We wanted to make sure that the natures of the crimes committed by those in prison who were doing the drawings were reflective of the same types of crimes committed by the corporation. So it's not a one-to-one. These are people convicted of murder, manslaughter, larceny, theft. And if you look at what these corporations have done – GM has pretty much copped to manslaughter. Nestle has done testing on children with horrific medical side effects without the parents' knowledge that they were doing this. It wasn't like we had someone who was convicted of drugs doing a drug company. But if you took the bucket of crimes that were committed by the corporations in the Captured Project and took the bucket of crimes committed by the artists, they would line up fairly evenly. The difference is the artist is serving 72 years for a murder – And the corporations continue to rake in record profits and pay no tax and reward their uh, CEOs handsomely. And by no means are we suggesting that the CEOs themselves should be in prison. We're saying this is imagining a world where those at the highest levels of power are responsible for the corporation's actions because on some level they are setting the culture and they are setting the tone for what is acceptable and that filters all the way down through the company. In the same vein – You worked on a project called We Are Always Listening. Yeah, We Are Always Listening is a project that I also did with Andrew Titer. We wanted to get people more personally enraged and involved in the issue of surveillance. In America, at least, you'll hear a lot of people saying, well, who cares if they're listening to what I'm saying? Who cares if they're looking at my communications? I'm not doing anything wrong. And so I'm not doing anything wrong. So why why should I care? There's a lot of problems with that argument. One of them being like, Knowing who you speak with and how often you speak to them and where you speak to them from without even knowing the contents of the conversation tells a great deal about you. It can reveal your sexual identity. It can reveal your medical conditions. And those things can be used against you. And if not by the government, perhaps by a private corporation because the government is also using third-party contractors to do a lot of this data collection and mining. How safe is what they know about you and whose hands is it in? So our goal was to try to make this is a personal story. So for those who are saying, I don't care if they're listening to me, I'm not doing anything wrong, we would then say, well, what if the contents of your conversation over brunch had been recorded and were able to be cataloged? Would you be so confident that you hadn't said anything that you don't want people to know? So what we did is we hid tape recorders all around New York City that were uh, stamped with property of the NSA on them. And we hid them under tables and bars and cafes and restaurants, galleries, even gyms all around New York City. And then we went back and collected the contents of those recordings. Did anyone find any along the way on their own? 
Uh, some of the press did because we told them where they were, but we had no way of knowing because the chances could be that the restaurant owner found it and threw it away or a grandmother who doesn't have Instagram. Not that grandmothers don't have Instagram, but I mean in a perfect world, someone would find it who has Instagram and has lots of followers and be like, what the fuck is going on? How many of these are out there? But to hedge our bets with that because we wanted the world to know the story, we simply sent a, a folder with a tape recorder and a tape and video of us installing one of the tapes under a table to a journalist at Wired Magazine. And the next day it was the front page of Wired Magazine. But we published the contents of these recordings on a website called wearealwayslistening.com. And so that was a way of getting people riled up. So New York Times and the New York Times of the world and the BuzzFeeds of the world were publishing stories like, your private conversations are being recorded and monitored and being published. How do you feel about this? And so when people went to the website, if they were indeed angry, as we hope they were, there was a button that just said angry. And if you clicked it, it took you to an action page at the ACLU where you could write directly to your elected officials and ask them to or demand that they end the provisions of the Patriot Act that allow for this wholesale data mining by the government. And we were successful in that we got, uh, I think, over 10,000 people a day for the first week to go to the ACLU page. And so I think projects like these, I'm not suggesting that we're telling people things they don't know or that they couldn't get from a traditional news source. But a lot of times there's a large audience that is immune to these messages or doesn't get them because... The way they're being parsed in the news is too either antiseptic or too impersonal or it just gets lost in a sea of other things that you need to know today. And when you make it theatrical, when you make it fun, when you make it surprising, when you make it visual, when you make it emotional, there's an opportunity for a larger group of people to know about it, care about it. And maybe in that new group of people, there'll be somebody who will have an idea or a form of protest or will run for office, make a small change towards something that's more in line with the values that I would like to see in the world. To find out more about Jeff, including his latest updates and next comedy shows, go to jeffgreenspan.com or follow at gspan on Instagram. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile, and we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.